Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The 35th Cog. Ainsley? It was Gerard's voice. At first, she thought he'd come into her bedroom without permission to annoy her. He did that sometimes. But then she remembered and opened her eyes. Her little brother's face looked tearfully down at her. His cheeks were dirty and his clothes disheveled. Lucy, he exclaimed, she's waking up. Ainsley sat up with a start, pulling the boy into a fierce hug. He felt smaller than she remembered, more frail. Gently, she lifted his chin and asked, what happened? Where are Frederick and Eunice? Gerard tried to answer, but only shook his head tearfully. A voice said, they're gone. With a gasp, Ainsley took in her surroundings. Definitely not her bedroom. The only light came from a weak lamp mounted flush to the low ceiling. It illuminated a small windowless chamber with drab gray metal walls. She and Gerard sat together on a moldy straw cot. There were two more such cots, both pushed up against the opposite wall. On one of them sat Lucy Stamper. She had a bloodied lip, but seemed otherwise okay. Their eyes met. Ainsley knew they were both thinking the same thing. Rand's dead. What is this place? Ainsley asked. A jail cell, Lucy replied, sounding hoarse. In the keep. Oh, yeah. Oh. How long have we been here? A couple of hours, Lucy replied. They brought us here from the plaza after... Gerard chimed in. You wouldn't wake up, but then Lucy glamoured you. Glamoured me? Lucy said. That keeper hit you pretty hard. Your brains got rattled. A concussion. That's what it's called. Maybe up here. But where I come from, it's called getting your brains rattled. Either way, you were in trouble. So after they dumped the two of us in here, I started working on you. She pointed to the blank metal wall beside Ainsley's cot. There were symbols drawn there and what looked like blood, Ainsley said. Yours, Lucy told her. That's how it works. You know that. I was bleeding? Your nose. Ainsley examined her face with her fingers. Nothing felt wrong. Nothing hurt. It's all healed, said the lower girl. That's kind of the point. I wasn't sure it would work on upper folk, but it did. Ainsley processed this news. Over the past few days, she'd witnessed root magic at work twice. But both of those incidents had been about healing Rand, not her. A Jaius priest during a sermon had once assured his flock that the goddess would never welcome a soul into her bosom that had been tainted by heathen glamour. Did that mean she was damned? And at this point did she care? Casting such thoughts away, Ainsley said, Thanks. Then she hugged her brother again. What happened? How did you get here? Didn't Frederick and Eunice take you to Eunice's sister's house? Gerard's little face crumpled. Keepers came. They... He started crying openly causing Ainsley to look with horror at Lucy. The lower girl explained, Seems the keeper tore the flop apart and found him. Then they trapped everyone else inside and burned the place. Structural fires were rare in the uppers, as there was very little wood to burn. But when it happened, anyone trapped inside didn't die from the flames or even smoke inhalation. Instead, as the metal walls heated up, they literally baked alive. Oh, dear Jai, Ainsley muttered. Lucy remarked, I've never heard of keepers doing things like that against upper folk. Ainsley looked tearfully at her little brother. Gerard's eyes were wide, his face pale. What was all this doing to him? And how much of it was her fault? I'm sorry, she told him, fighting a sob. 
Gerard said nothing. What's going to happen to us? She asked Lucy. The Laurel girl shrugged. They might just keep us in here until we rot, or maybe they'll hang us. Ainsley almost rebuked her for saying such a thing in front of her brother, but from the look on Gerard's face, this last horror didn't surprise him much. Don't be scared, she told him. The boy only nodded. The damned upper folk won, Lucy said. Not the upper folk, Ainsley replied. Baird and Gammon. All of this, it's been part of a long-term plan to take total control of the machine and put down your people once and for all. Lucy rubbed her face wearily. I don't ken. Why wait for so long? Didn't they already run the machine? Why not just do this years ago? Ainsley held Gerard a little tighter, as much for her comfort as his. Because the uppers are supposed to be a democracy. The proctorship's an elected position. Baird's held it for more than a quarter century, winning re-election again and again because she's just the right kind of smart and just the right kind of charming. And Gammon's remained commandant mainly because of Baird's patronage. Even so, they've still needed to worry about public opinion. Our father used to say that the upper folk like the machine the way it is, and they'll vote down any change. Well, nobody knows that better than Edith Baird. So they had to bide their time. First, they needed to get their metal monsters up and running. Then there was my father and the watch to consider. Maybe they didn't dare move against him until they found a way to shut down his project Torque, Lucy said. But then Rand showed up as Torque. Ainsley nodded. They didn't see that coming. Nobody did. But it made them show their hand. Maybe Baird was telling the truth when she said killing my father was never part of the plan. She shuddered and squeezed her eyes shut to trap the tears. She didn't want to cry. Not again, not ever again. Gerard wrapped his arms around her neck, this time offering comfort instead of demanding it. A sweetly selfless act for a young child. Suffering made you grow up fast. She felt the bunk bow slightly beside her. Then another pair of arms settled around her. Thin, but muscular. Lucy, of course. I'm sorry for your loss, the lower girl whispered. Touched, Ainsley choked back a sob. I figured you'd want to kill me. Lucy didn't reply. Ainsley kept talking, babbling, really. Rand's dead. And if I hadn't talked him to coming back to the uppers with me, he wouldn't be. Maybe. So? So, why, after all that, are you being nice to me? The lower girl withdrew, shifting a few inches away from Ainsley on the cot. She didn't say a word. Still, Ainsley pressed the point, not really knowing why. I can you hate me. And after the way things turned out, I don't blame you. I don't hate you, Lucy replied, actually adding finger quotes. I hate Gammon. I hate Baird. I hate that Julia girl. I might even hate Upper Folk as a whole. But you? You I don't hate. What about me? Gerard asked. Do you hate me? Lucy Stamper actually smiled. She had a good smile, filled with warmth and compassion. A mother's smile. You, Ludling, Lucy told the boy, never. Then her eyes met Ainsley's, and she added, With you, it wasn't about hatred. Not really, it was about... What? Ainsley asked. Lucy stuck out her chin. Rand likes... liked you. Before Ainsley could form a reply, their cell's iron door clanked loudly open. Two smartly dressed keepers entered, then two more, then two more. None of them spoke. Instead, they took up stiff, regimental positions, three on the left and three on the right, allowing just enough space between them for a single person to pass. A moment later, Proctor Edith Baird entered. Good afternoon, ladies. She wore an elegant linen pantsuit with a leather coat that bore all the official sashes of her office. Her hair was perfectly coiffed, her makeup artfully and judiciously applied. Ainsley, she said, I'm very sorry it's come to this. 
Please understand that this isn't personal. I've simply done what needed doing. Your father's death was unfortunate. Henry acted precipitously. August was a good man, though he lacked the fortitude to do what was necessary. Necessary, Ainsley exclaimed, jumping to her feet so quickly that two keepers blocked her path. The slaughter of thousands of innocent people is necessary? Child, Baird replied patiently, you're looking at things the wrong way around. That creature beside you isn't a person. She and her ilk are resources, sometimes useful tools, nothing more. One only needs to look at her to know that. Lucy glared but didn't move. Ainsley thought that was probably smart. The proctor continued. Once her kind have been culled to within manageable limits, I will institute a rigorous breeding regimen to make certain we never find ourselves in such a precarious situation again. They're not slaves, Ainsley exclaimed. Of course not, silly girl, Baird said, not unkindly. They're firewood. Oh, sometimes we use them for other purposes, but mostly they only exist to warm us. It's always been that way. Your father simply chose not to see it. Your mother, too. That's why I... Then she caught herself, her mouth snapping shut. What about my mother? Ainsley demanded. It's not important. Ainsley felt her face flush. What about my mother? She yelled. Calm yourself, young lady. This is unbecoming. Ainsley started forward, but a keeper put a ham-sized hand on her shoulder, holding her at bay. Seeing this, Baird seemed to consider. Finally, she replied, Very well. I don't suppose it matters now. Ainsley, dear, I'm afraid you inherited your meddlesome nature from your mother. August, at least, could be reasoned with, persuaded, threatened if necessary. But Marie and her naive reforms proved too stubborn to be swayed. In the end, drastic measures had to be taken. What measures? I'm not Henry Gammon. I don't shoot people in their homes. No, I favor subtler tactics. In your mother's case, a particularly unassuming poison slipped into her teacup at a public function worked quite nicely. Ainsley felt like she'd been punched in the stomach. You, she gasped, swaying on her feet. Suddenly, Lucy was at her side, supporting her. It was a kind gesture, a friend's gesture, but Ainsley barely noticed. The whole of her being was fixed on the proctor, who regarded her with patient condescension. You murdered my mother. As I indicated, Baird replied, I have the fortitude to do what is necessary. Ainsley need the keeper standing in front of her in the groin. She'd never done such a thing before and wasn't sure she'd done it right, but the results were both immediate and satisfying. The guard doubled over, his face contorted in agony. Ainsley sidestepped him and lunged at Baird. She got one hand on the woman's hair and the other on her face before the rest of the keepers could react. She raked her nails down the proctor's cheek, screaming in rage and soul-crushing grief, until she was bodily lifted and thrown back against the wall. Her head hit the hard, smooth metal like the clap of a bell. She didn't lose consciousness, but the strength seemed to bleed out of her as she slid to the floor. Gerard wailed and tried to run to her, only to be grabbed by one of the keepers and lifted right off his feet. Meanwhile, Lucy advanced, kicking and punching and biting until it took three men to restrain her. Edith Baird pressed a white handkerchief to her bloodied face, her eyes blazing with outrage. She issued an order, though Ainsley's head rang too loudly for her to really hear it. Two of the keepers pinned Lucy down on the cot, then a third came forward and pistol-whipped her, his strong arm moving up and down like a piston in an engine. Meanwhile, Gerard struggled in the grip of the man who still held him. The little boy screamed and reached desperately for his sister, who was too stunned to do anything more than stare back at him in helpless horror. At Baird's command, her brother was carried from the cell. No! Ainsley screamed, trying to stand. Another keeper slapped her hard across the face, dropping her back to the floor. 
and all the while Lucy's savage beating continued. Then Ainsley was hauled to her feet and slammed against the wall, her wrists pinned. A moment later, Edith Baird came forward. Her right cheek was a bloody mess. "'Do you see what you did to me?' the upper woman shrieked. Then, with visible effort, Baird steadied herself. In a calmer voice, she said, "'I have a public appearance to make in a little while. So do you, by the way.' I had wanted to look my best, but now I will have to make my apologies to the good upper folk for your bad behavior. Ainsley looked at Lucy. The lower girl's face was a ruin of blood and bruises. The keeper raised his pistol to hit her again. No, Ainsley exclaimed. Please. Enough, Baird told the man, and to Ainsley she said, Honestly, I don't know why you Pinkertons insist on wasting so much worry on lower folk. It's not as if they matter. Where are you taking my brother? Ainsley demanded. Baird smiled and came closer still until Ainsley thought she could smell coppery blood mixed with the proctor's perfume. Little Gerard, I've decided to be merciful and not blame the boy for the crimes of his family members. He's to be raised in my household. I've never had children of my own. Now I'll finally be able to enjoy the pleasures of motherhood. What? Ainsley exclaimed. You can't. But I have to, child, Baird replied. After all, someone has to care for the boy. Oh, I know it'll be an adjustment for him, but children are resilient, or so I've heard. In time, he'll learn to call me mother. Of course, first I'll have to be sure he's broken all ties with his old life. That's why he'll be on hand when the last of his blood relations meets her end. What are you talking about? The proctor stepped back. Oh, in all this unpleasantness, I forgot to mention it. In about an hour, there's going to be a public gathering at the Market Plaza. Attendance is mandatory. Henry and I are going to officially unveil Project Vindicator, well, a third of it anyway, and announce the plan to send Gabber down to the Lowers to address the lawless element among the working class. That's insane, Ainsley spat. It's mass murder. Baird seemed not to have heard. You'll be there as well. So will the Balzrat. Both of you were found guilty of treason in absentia just thirty minutes ago and sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. Toward that end, we've erected a gallows in the center of the plaza so that everyone can bear witness, as you both pay for your crimes. It should be quite the spectacle. I will, of course, officiate, with Commandant Gammon on my one side, and little Gerard on the other. Suddenly it felt as if all the breath had been squeezed from Ainsley's lungs. As I told you, the proctor remarked, I'm truly sorry it's come to this. With that, she headed out the door and into the darkened hallway beyond. A moment later, the keepers followed, releasing Ainsley. She slid down the wall, swallowed up by empty despair. I've heard it said, Baird remarked, that Jai reunites the newly dead with their family members who went before them. If so, please give my warmest regards to your mother and father. They really were both lovely people. Then the door slammed shut with the finality of a coffin lid. The 36th Cog Doors burst open inside Rand's head. Doors, of course, were rare in the lowers. In fact, he'd seen more during his brief visit to the uppers than ever before in his life. But apparently that was nothing compared to the number of doors in his mind. And they didn't just reveal themselves one at a time, either. Instead, they all opened at once, spilling their contents in a rush of pictures and sound, of memories and knowledge, of awareness. Almost without realizing it, Rand sank to his knees in the muck, the sweat on his face glistening in the light that shone from the walls of the drop, from the words written there. But he didn't read them. Not yet. Besides, pretty much everything they had to tell him was already there, in his head, 
tumbling out through those newly opened doors. He saw the machine, new and huge and perfect, built by a desperate people who looked like ordinary folk but dressed differently, in fabrics and styles that Rand had never seen, not even in the uppers. On their faces they wore gadgets of some sort, metal mech that covered their mouths and noses. Rand could hear these gadgets groaning and wheezing with every breath the people took, doing something. Meanwhile, the folk busied themselves, moving through the tunnels and among the gearboxes. They touched everything, every surface, every threshold, every wall, tracing words with their fingers. The old tongue, machine language. And the machine responded because that was its purpose. Every inch of it was built to accept and obey these runes, these instructions. It's not magic, Rand gasped. It never was. And from somewhere nearby, no name replied, nope. But Rand barely heard the Ludling and couldn't see him at all. That was because the doors were still opening and their knowledge was washing over him, drowning out all else. These people were engineers and scholars. No, there was another word, an older one. Scientists. They had constructed the machine and were now fine-tuning it with their touch, preparing it for its task, which was important, so important, but also long. Very, very long. The scientists would not live to see its job completed, nor would their lings, nor their lingslings. The great task would take more than decades, more even than centuries. It would take an age. So, knowing they couldn't oversee the machine themselves, the scientists left behind Root, an artificial intellect, a manufactured mind. Throughout the long years, Root would keep watch, making adjustments, recalibrating components, and initiating repairs as needed. And Root took such pride in his responsibility. Whenever he spoke with the scientists, he was forever eager to begin his task and grateful for this chance to prove himself, to make his creators proud. During those final days, he frequently appeared to them filled with excitement and exuberance, and always in the form of a young Ludling, though not the young Rand, as Rand Roberts wouldn't be born for millennia, just a random Ludling. Witnessing it, Rand kenned that this quirk of roots was neither necessary nor expected. It was simply how the artificial intellect viewed himself. Finally, with their overseer in place, the scientists issued their final command, and all through the machine's enormously incalculably complex structure, signals passed through miles of cables, charging mech that in turn spun gears, rotated axles, and filled the network of pipes with what? Not with heat. That was the Upper Lord's misappropriation of their true purpose. No, these pipes were filled with life. Wait, that was right, but also wrong. Not life, precisely, but... Something life needed, something that the world was lacking, something that needed to be replenished. Oxygen, Rand said aloud. It was a word he'd never heard before, though he'd read it, hadn't he? He'd seen it written in a dream, in the old tongue on the back wall of their flop. In the dream, no name had told him it was part of the name of the machine. Of course, it hadn't been a dream. It had been a door, a door in his mind, a door ajar. Oxygen, no name agreed. More doors opened and Rand suddenly kenned what oxygen was. It was a substance that was part of the air he breathed, both invisible and healthy, more than healthy, necessary. It filled every inch of open space, not just inside the machine, but in the sky above it. That had been the point. The machine had been built because the scientists, or the people they served or answered to, had somehow drained the air of oxygen. That was what the gadgets on their faces were for, tiny machines providing them with the oxygen the air no longer contained. Replenishing it. Terrestrial, 
Rand heard himself mutter. No name said. Yeah. Another word from the wall of the flop. An odd word. An odd word, both simpler and far more complicated than Rand would have guessed. It meant everything. Not just the machine, but the surrounding clouds and whatever lay beneath those clouds. All that could be found under the upper sky, which was much, much more than even the upper lord's guessed. So much more that it was hard for Rand to really wrap his mind around it. The one thing became clear. There was no nowhere. There was only everywhere else. And finally, with that knowledge, the three words formed in Rand's mind with perfect clarity. Terrestrial Oxygen Replenisher. It was the name of a massive tech gadget. Built to fix the everywhere else. Built to put back the oxygen that the old people, how Rand would forever think of them, had managed to drain away. Doing so would take centuries, millennia, and while the machine worked and ran and churned out the precious oxygen, the old people and their civilization slowly, inevitably collapsed, because they couldn't breathe. The folks and their scientists had built the machine not to save themselves, but in the hopes of protecting the potential of a distant future. It had been a selfless act of a people who, Rand Kend, had otherwise shown little selflessness. Then still more doors opened, and a new fundamental realization overcame him. This great task to serve an unknowable future had ended long ago. And the machine wasn't broken. Just finished. It had finished fixing the everywhere else in ages past, and since then it had been waiting, and waiting, and waiting. For what? For further instructions. Rand was still on his knees in the slime at the bottom of the drop, his arms limp at his sides, his eyes turned blindly upward. But in his mind he was soaring, basking in a new awareness that was both alien and utterly familiar. After all, strange and unexpected as they might be, these were his doors. With an effort, he pulled his attention away from this tide of knowledge and memories, away from these countless open doors. There was more there, much more. But for the moment he'd kenned enough. You did it he said to No Name. The Ludling, standing nearby, asked, Did what? Rand met his eyes. Root, the overseer, the Ludling god. You fixed the world. No Name considered this. Finally, he said wryly, Nice to know. Don't you remember? Don't you remember the machine recognizing that the oxygen had reached its target levels and shutting down? Well, look who's been learning new words. Rand kenned. No Name's humor was a curtain behind which the lost god could hide. Slowly, stiffly, Rand climbed to his feet and smiled gently down at the Ludling. You don't remember, do you? No Name's mouth worked. Finally, he said, Not really. How long were you alone? I don't know. I have some vague memories of being happy, busy. The machine and I were doing important work. But then, later, I think, I expected someone to come to thank me. In fact, I seem to recall being certain they would. I waited day after day, year after year. So long ago, I don't even remember when I stopped counting the passing time. I guess it's possible the exact number of years might still be buried inside me somewhere. But now, I don't think I really want to know. Calling it loneliness doesn't even begin to say it. For eternity, I wandered these empty tunnels. Seeing nothing, being nothing. The machine around me silent. Solitude, total solitude, is the worst thing there is. He gazed miserably up at Rand. Do you ken why they abandoned me? They didn't, Rand told him. Not intentionally. 
But during the centuries that the machine and you were doing your job, the old people disappeared. Or at least their civilization did. I think everything just moved on. I know it's awful. Maybe the most unfair thing I've ever heard of, and that's saying something. But by the time you'd fixed the world, it had completely forgotten you. Then he added, meaning it, I'm really sorry. Me too, No Name whispered. Rand said, but eventually others did come, right? Or maybe they were the same folks, just so many hundreds of generations later that they'd lost or abandoned all the knowledge that the scientists had once had. Yeah, the Lundling replied. They were a simpler people, uneducated, illiterate, and they spoke a language I'd never heard before. They were nomads and had spotted the machine from a distance, but had no idea what it was. Even so, I was thrilled to see them. I remember having so much to tell them, so many status reports that had, until then, gone unreported. I appeared to them, tried to make them aware of me. I tried desperately. But no matter what I did, they couldn't see or hear me. At least, not until Torque came along. Came along. You didn't create him. A statement, not a question. The Ludling shook his head. More time passed after the arrival of the new people. There were thousands of them now, filling the machine, making homes and lives for themselves. They'd become aware of me in a funny way. They knew my function. Root. But they thought I was a spirit, a god. They misunderstood so much. The thing is, they'd brought their own god as well. Rand said, Jai. He knew this. He'd seen it through one of the open doors. The goddess had come from the everywhere else along with these new people. Then, much later, as the folk began cannibalizing the machine for their own purposes, a differentiation had formed between those who planned and those who worked. A differentiation that grew into a schism, a gulf of understanding that ran, to a large degree, along religious lines. Giants versus root worshippers. Masters versus slaves. Uppers versus lowers. No Name said, One day, much later, a Lud appeared among the lower folk who was different. Whenever I came near him, I could tell he sensed me, more than any of the others. It was subtle at first, but the connection grew stronger over time. Then one day, he saw me. You can't imagine how it felt to be seen, to be heard after so long. The millennium solitude I suffered through was bad enough, but the centuries of being ignored that came after were even worse. Suicide, if such a word even applies to me, is outside my capabilities. But if it hadn't been... No Name actually shuddered. It was, Rand thought, a very living person reaction. I'm sorry you went through all that, Rand said, meaning it. But tell me about Torque, the first one. Was he like me? It took the Ludling almost a minute to answer. He was older than you, more cynical about his place in the machine. But he was my friend, and for a long time we worked side by side to make the life of the lower folk, the true residents of the machine, less terrible. The true residents? Of course, Rand. You've been to the uppers. That's not the machine and never was. The machine ends at the roof. The world those Luds have built for themselves on the top is theirs alone, separate. The machine is, and always has been, the lower folk. It was a perspective that, so far, none of Rand's newly opening mind doors had revealed. What happened to him? The first torque. Again, No Name hesitated before answering. That's... A painful story, and to be honest, I don't think I've got the heart for it right now. 
Suffice it to say, I lost my only friend a thousand years ago, and once again found myself alone in the machine. His dark eyes met Rand's. Someday I'll tell you. Just not today. Is that solid? Yeah, it's solid. Thanks. Now it's your turn, the lulling said. From the way you've been talking, I can you've accepted who you are? I'm Torque, Rand replied. I always have been. No Name nodded sagely. Yeah, you have. All those years you spent patrolling the machine, defending the defenseless. That was you being Torque. Your awareness simply hadn't caught up with your natural inclinations. That's what I recognized when you stumbled into the knot last week and found me. You were different from other lower folk. You were selfless. Lots of lower folk are selfless, Rand pointed out. Lucy, Ainsley, No Name replied. Ainsley's not lower folk. Then after a moment's thought, he added, Well, maybe she is now. Depends on how you look at it. But I take your point. However, unlike Lucy, you could see me. From that moment, I kenned who you were. But who was I? Rand wondered. I'm Torque, yes, I get that. But I didn't just pop into existence at the age of seven or eight. I suppose I must have had parents. Everybody does, the Ludling replied. Even me, after a fashion. Who were mine? Yet another hesitant pause. I've got no idea. Rand's heart sank. Of all the answers he'd been given, of all the doors he'd opened, this was the one mystery he'd most wanted explained. And yet, there was something more here, something either unsaid or unrealized. Rand sensed it, floating at the edges of his awareness, but he couldn't quite grasp it, at least not yet, not with all these other revelations crowding his mind. In that instant, in fact, another door opened, a big one. There are other machines, he exclaimed with a gasp. No name looked sharply at him. What? They studied each other in the light burning off the walls of the drop. Other machines, Rand said. Twenty of them in all. The scientists built them in carefully chosen locations. There's this word, new to me, equidistant. I'm not sure what it means, except that the machines are far apart from each other. Even from the highest rooftop in the uppers, you can't see the nearest one. Ludling seemed utterly flabbergasted. How do you know? he whispered. Q, Rand replied. Q? The name of the machine. Terrestrial Oxygen Replenisher Q. Torque. The name of the machine. Terrestrial Oxygen Replenisher Q. T-O-R-Q. Torque. Yeah, your name and the machine's name are the same, but... The Q is this machine's designation, another word whose meaning he only partially kenned. Each of the Tor gadgets is given a letter in the old tongue to identify it. But if that's true, No Name said, then these other machines must still be out there. Their tasks are finished, replied Rand. They fixed their part of the everywhere else. That much I'm sure of. All the machines are quiet now. But, Ludling stammered, it was the first time Rand had ever heard him struggle for words. If there are other machines, then then there could be other... His eyes shone. Roots. Yeah, Rand said, smiling. There could. The Ludling took a long, shuddering breath. Then, as if a switch had been thrown, his eyes widened and he said, We're out of time, Rand. I'm sorry. I was so caught up in your awakening. Awakening, Rand thought wistfully. That's exactly what it had been. What it still was. That I lost track of time. Something about the urgency behind No Name's words pushed all of the wistfulness right out of Rand's head. Suddenly, doors stopped opening, at least for now. 
Lucy, he said, gripped by an icy fear. Ainsley. The Ludling nodded. What's going on up there? Nothing good. I can't see as well in the uppers as I do in the lowers. Technically, it's outside the machine, but I can see well enough. No name, Rand pressed. Baird and Gammon are going to hang them. The words hit Rand like a punch to the stomach. What? I'm sorry. When's this going to happen? Soon, the Ludling replied miserably. Pretty much now. Rand ran a trembling hand through the filthy knot of hair atop his head, thinking furiously. Even if he could find his pipe in this muck, even if it still functioned, even if he went back to the lair and refilled it, he'd never make it to the uppers in time. The route was too long, too convoluted. The lowers, the middle markets, the lifts, and the lifts weren't even running. All his life, Rand had done what felt right. It was a simple rule that had nevertheless guided his every move. But in this case, nothing felt right. There was simply no next move to make. He turned in a circle, an old habit of his when there was trouble, a search for ideas, for solutions. But all he saw were the walls of the drop, impossibly high, alight with words, words that he could now easily read. There, in letters six feet tall, was written the name of the machine, and below it, in smaller script, someone had added a dedication of sorts. Or a promise. Torque is life. Torque will save this broken world. Torque is our conscience. Torque is our redeemer. Torque is our last hope. Without thinking about it, Rand waded through the knee-high muck until he stood directly in front of that dedication. Then, with no name looking on silently, Rand pressed his palms against the glowing words and closed his eyes. He could feel power coursing through the machine, finished but never broken, dormant, waiting, waiting for him. Another door popped open and suddenly Rand kenned how Lucy's healing worked, and the light runes, too. The machine wanted to be commanded. It was, in its way, as lonely as Root, and it craved human contact. So Rand obliged it. I'm Torque, he said, putting everything he had, all his desperation and determination, all his horror and hope, into those two simple words. And that was all it took. Power sizzled through his hands and up along his arms. It coursed throughout his body, not painful, but instead pleasingly warm, and familiar, as all of this had been. Strangely, inexplicably familiar. Rand's hands turned to gold. But no, that wasn't quite right. They were suddenly coated in gold, a thin covering of gleaming liquid metal that fit his fingers like an extra layer of skin. As he watched, transfixed, the gold spread, covering his wrists and running up his forearms. At the same instant, more gold slid up from the floor and covered his feet, traveling in upward-bound rivulets along both legs. Rand didn't move. Whatever was happening, he decided to trust the machine and let it happen. The running gold entirely encased his limbs before sliding up his abdomen and back, extending, reaching. He felt it coat his shoulders, then his collarbone, then his neck, before sliding smoothly over his hair and ears. Off to one side, just within Rand's peripheral vision, No Name watched and smiled, his eyes shining with the light that radiated now, not merely from the words on the walls, but from Rand's own body as well. At last, with the whole of his form now fully encased in gold, the power consumed his face. It covered his chin and cheekbones, his lips and nose. Only then did it stop. Rand stepped back from the wall and looked down at himself. Gilded armor. But this was nothing like the stuff he'd worn before. The gold covering his body was unbroken and yet hard to the touch. Yet when he raised his hand and flexed his fingers, they moved easily, as if the gleaming metal weren't there at all. No joints, no seams, perfect and smooth, yet not completely smooth. There were words. 
The same words as on the walls now covered Rand's body, the same dedication, the same promise. It began atop his head and ran down his chest and back before tracing all four of his limbs. Reading it from inside the new armor was awkward, though certain words leapt out at him. Life. Save. Conscience. Redeem. Hope. Good words. Powerful words. Slowly he turned around, feeling new energy course through him with every step, every movement. His countless pains and bruises were gone, healed. He felt renewed, invigorated, replenished. No name appeared at his side. The Ludling, the god, the artificial intellect held something out to him. It was Tork's pipe. Somehow, during Rand's transformation, no name had managed to fish it out of the deep slime filling the bottom of the drop. It hadn't fared well in the fall from the uppers. Its counters were smashed, spitting tiny gears and springs. The levers had all broken off and the gold plate, once so gleaming, had been scraped away in places revealing the gray iron beneath. It was just a pipe, of course, just a bit of scrap, and not particularly new scrap at that. I thought you said it was a toy, Rand remarked. It is, replied the Ludling, but it's also a symbol. Rand took the pipe in his hand. Then, opening yet another of his mind doors, he focused on the broken bit of refuse and turned it to gold. Gone were the blemishes, gone were the fractured counters and snapped levers, gone was the thumb crank. Instead, what Rand held was a piece of the machine, ancient and pure and finally hollow like a normal pipe. Except there was nothing normal about it, not anymore. There, no name said appreciatively. That's more like it. Without really kenning why, Rand knelt before this smaller, younger version of himself, dropping to one knee in the muck, feeling the whole of the machine pulse and throb throughout his body, his mind, and his new armor. He bowed his head respectfully. This wasn't worship. Root was no god. Rand knew that. But he was ancient and wise. And he showed me who I am. Thank you, Rand said. You can thank me by saving my people, starting with Lucy and Ainsley. I will. Then No Name switched to his Ludling voice and added tremulously, And one more thing. Be my friend. At that, Rand looked up into No Name's round, innocent face. His face. Always, he said. Then get your ass up, Torque. Rand got his ass up. I wish you could come with me. The Ludling smiled. I'll be watching. Solid, Rand told him. Watch this. And wrapped in his shining gilded armor, Torque leapt skyward, hurtling himself up the drop like a bullet fired from a gun. Flying. Time to do what felt right. With things at their most dire, get ready to meet the real Torque in the next episode of Torque by Ty Drago. If you just can't stand the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening.